Hey guys, Zach here, and welcome to the Saffron Academy podcast. The objective of this podcast is to be an additional educational resource for our viewers. Saffron Finance does not endorse the viewpoints shared in these conversations, nor should this be construed as any kind of financial advice. But we are interested in giving exposure to a wide range of brilliant investors, developers, entrepreneurs, traders, and so much more. If you have an idea for a topic or particular guest request, feel free to write into the show at dingo at saffron.finance. I hope you guys enjoy this, and we are looking forward to seeing what kind of value this provides. Today's guest is Meltem Demirers. Meltem is the Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares. She is an established veteran of digital asset investing and has invested personally in Saffron Finance. In this episode, we talk about how Meltem got her start in crypto, why she invested in Saffron, the future of DeFi, and so much more. We had a great time recording this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Saffron Academy podcast. As you know, I'm Zach, and today I'm joined by an absolute force in the crypto world, the one and only Meltem Demirs. Meltem, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you are too kind, Zach. Um, as far as I know right now, I'm the only Meltem, but in Turkey, Meltem's a popular name, so it could be that there are more Meltems out there. <laughs> we just haven't met them yet. Noted, <laughs> noted for next time. Um, well, anyway, it's great to have you, and uh, we're going to dive right into it. Yeah, um, let's do it. Listen, I know it's a, a, a bit obligatory, but I know... Uh, your path is particularly interesting in that you actually had a background in trading commodities like gas, et cetera, before you got into crypto. And you've touched on this in past interviews, but what I'd really love to hear from you is when you did discover Bitcoin, you know, what did you see in the technology that pushed you towards the decision that this was going to be a career path for you? Because I know a lot of people, whether they invest in crypto or they follow the market, uh, it's not everybody that makes the decision that, hey, you know, I can do this for a living. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I love the rabbit hole story. I think that's actually one of the fun parts of, of crypto is when you meet people, like the first rite of passage is, hey, what's, what's your rabbit hole story? So would love to share mine. Um, so it was I, I first learned about Bitcoin in, in 2012 on 4chan, as one does. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, was, um, of course, I, of course. <laughs> who doesn't? Um, I've always been like a kind of a, a dork, um, you know, spent a lot of time late at night on my computer looking at weird things on the Internet. So anyways, um, you know, in 2012, it was really just Bitcoin and it um, was was pretty different. Um, it was very political in nature. There's a lot of uh, ideological sort of underpinning to the types of people who are attracted to, to Bitcoin in those early days, um, started interacting with Bitcoin, actually like sending Bitcoin, um, in, in 2013. And for me, even though my family is from rural Turkey and I had spent a lot of time in rural Turkey growing up, even though I grew up in, in Western Europe and then in the, the U S as a teenager, um, 
I had never really had issues with money or with banking because I had always just taken those things for granted. But interacting with my family members who live in in Turkey, it started to become very apparent to me how the existing financial system, but more importantly, it's not just the financial system itself, it's the underlying infrastructure um, that supports the financial system. We can delve into how that's evolving very quickly. Um, But it wasn't until I started interacting with Bitcoin and sending Bitcoin to people overseas, like on a Sunday at 2 a.m., I could send, you know, $100 to someone without needing an intermediary. The transaction fees were extremely low, right? You're paying like six cents for that transaction. And the person on the other end is receiving the transaction. Doesn't matter what bank they have, what wallet they're using. We're all operating on the same open source blockchain protocol. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, I was in grad school at MIT at the time, and I was spending a lot of time uh, actually not directly in the crypto space, but at that time, fintech was really becoming a big trend in the venture space. And before grad school, I didn't really know anything about startups. Like I did not realize that that was the thing people yeah. did. Um, I was in the energy industry. Like I was in, I'd lived in a lot of different countries. You know, I was spent most of my time, um, you know, in northern Canada working on like SAG-D projects out in China, working on mining acquisitions, um, out in the back end working on shale gas ops. Like I was not in tune with that world at all. And I learned about startups. I'm like, wait a minute, like someone's going to give me like millions of dollars to to build an idea. I was like, this is fire. I do whatever yeah. <laughs> this is. Like I need to get in on this. This is lit. Like, yeah. yes, please. Um, and so I had been really into the, the fintech side, but obviously um, Dan Ellitzer and Jeremy Rubin, they had started the MIT Bitcoin Club. Dan was my classmate, so I was also engaging on the Bitcoin side. And then like Bitcoin and fintech really started to intersect um, in 2014, 2015. That's when Coinbase went through YC and raised a pretty significant round. Circle, which was located and headquartered in Boston, also raised a pretty sizable round. So I was like, wait a minute, venture capital, fintech, Bitcoin, <laughs> this, this is a thing. And then um, Dan Elitzer actually introduced me to um, Ryan Selkis, who introduced me to Barry Silver. Ryan and Barry had been working on this idea called Digital Currency Group. So like a month before I'm set to graduate from grad school, I give up my sponsorship because my job prior to grad school had sponsored me to go to grad school. I was now a quarter of a million dollars in debt. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go work for a Bitcoin company that hasn't raised any money. This is going to be good. <laughs> like I had never done anything like that in my life. I was like, you know, fuck it. Like, let's let's try this. Um, and you know, it, I'm not going to lie, the first few were, years were, were not easy. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what really was so visible to me, even, you know, in April of 2015, when I was still a little baby and I still am, I feel like I still don't know anything. But in talking with people like Eric Voorhees and, um, you know, people like um, Jeremy Allaire and, and people who were building these companies, one of the things that just immediately became so apparent was just the sheer amount of intellectual horsepower 
and the sheer amount of um, intellectual rigor and just the overlapping disciplines that make up what is Bitcoin. Um, there's aspects of the social sciences, there's aspects of economics, there's which is also social science, but there's aspects of um, you know uh, philosophy in it. There's also obviously huge element of hard sciences, of, of math, of cryptography. And so bringing all of these things together in one package attracts such an eclectic mix of really interesting people. And all of these people, by the way, who I now have the joy of calling, you know, my my friends, because we've worked together over the last seven years to build this crazy industry. What really struck me is um, these people were so gritty because working in a Bitcoin company or working on building a Bitcoin company back in 2015 basically meant you got punched in the face like 10 times a day. <laughs> yeah. day. You know, so many people I met with when we were trying to raise money for DCG was like, this is crazy. Like you're going to jail. Bitcoin is a scam. <laughs> I was like, right. But yeah. <laughs> let me tell you about what's happening. Yeah. Like, let me tell you what's, what's happening in Kenya with this company called Bitpesa. Like, let me tell you what's happening in the Philippines with this company coins.ph. Like, let me tell you some stories. I was like, this, this is happening. It's real. So, um, that's my sort of rabbit hole story. And since then it's just been a weird, wild, fun ride. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and just to speak to what you were saying that back in the day, back in 2012, 2013, it was really just Bitcoin and it was definitely filled with people who uh, had a lot of uh, ideological uh, takes on the importance of the technology. But we start to see that, you know, it's really blossomed since then. And I asked actually a, a similar question to a previous guest, Mike Henley of, of DeFi Omega. I was just wondering what your impression was when you started to see projects like Ethereum or Cardano, even Saffron start to pop up and whether, you know, were you immediately sold on the potential? Were you skeptical? Uh, was that something that you saw potentially happening with blockchain technology before that happened? Or, you know, what was that like for you where it started to really open up and become uh, kind of a different community, a different scene? Yeah. So, so if we go back, right, um, in 2015, it really was Bitcoin. Um, the Ethereum yellow paper had just come out. Um, and actually the Ethereum ICO uh, happened like in, in April, May, um, so, you know, that that was still very much under the radar. And I didn't really hear about it till I went to San Francisco and hung out at um, the first iteration of the Crypto Castle, you know, and um, I was like, oh, there's this thing called Ethereum. And then I met um, Joey Krug and um, the guys building, building Augur. And so I, that world, you know, wasn't really something that was so much intersecting with with the Bitcoin world, but tokens had been in existence and and like layer two protocols had been in existence since pretty much the the start of Bitcoin. And so, I think when it, the Ethereum thing started, um, you know, I wasn't spending as much time in the Ethereum community. I was super in the Bitcoin community, and at that time, a lot of my focus was on what was happening with Bitcoin Core and the developer community. Um, and obviously, there were a lot of you know vociferous <laughs> debates over block size, and obviously, very different schools of thought on on block size. And um, you know, so most of my time was really being spent in in the Bitcoin community. And to be fair, at that point in time, that's where most of the the tangible product was is, as well. Because Ethereum, you know, like the network hadn't even been launched yet. It was still like very 
philosophical and sort of ideological. And then I think um, once Ethereum launched, like things really started to accelerate. I didn't really pay that much attention to other blockchain protocols. Um, aside from, I spent a lot of time with the IPFS team early on, and I thought um, Filecoin was a really fascinating concept. Just the idea of um, decentralized file storage, and instead of addressing something to like a server somewhere, you're addressing something to a, a protocol um, that relies on distributed compute like that that i think made sense to me right away as well as um blockstack which at the time you know um was operating on on namecoin that was very fascinating i spent a lot of time on lightning as well um i met the lightning labs team really early on one of their first investors worked with them you know and and helping them <laughs> figure out how to raise money for this crazy idea that you could build a second layer on top of of bitcoin and create lightning channels and and send really fast really high speed um low value transactions um and so you know, for me, it wasn't so much about other protocols. It was really about looking at the space and being like, okay, um, there, there's Bitcoin, there's, um, and by the way, we already had tokens on top of Bitcoin, like the colored coin protocols of 2015, 2016. There were like four different standards for how you create a colored coin, which effectively is a token, right? It's like a little bit of Bitcoin dust tagged with metadata, um, or effectively, maybe it's more like an NFT. Um, yeah, it's like an NFT, I guess. And then um, there was like smart contracts on top of Bitcoin. A lot of people working on the modularization of Bitcoin Core to make it easier to, to work with Bitcoin. Um, it wasn't really until late 2017 when I was like, this ICO thing's wild, right? Um, and yeah. even at that time, the blockchain, not Bitcoin thing never really made sense to me. Like at the end of the day, it was always about Bitcoin. And in a, in a way, it's still really all about Bitcoin. And and I'll explain why, right? If you think about it from a market perspective, uh, markets are about pricing um, risk, right? And then enabling the buying and selling of risk. So people who don't like risk, um, they're able to sell that risk on to people who like risk. And then the people who like risk earn return for giving capital uh, to the people who don't like risk. And then they earn the return for taking that risk. So like markets are effectively just an engine that allow you to package and sell risk in different different ways. Um, what's really interesting to me about what's happened since the advent of you know new protocols that aren't Bitcoin is effectively what we're doing is we're making a series of trade-offs, right? Like Bitcoin is really optimized in my view for long-term wealth preservation and value preservation. Because Bitcoin more than anything else prioritizes security, right? And some people bemoan the fact that innovation in Bitcoin doesn't move as quickly as in other networks. But we're talking about over a trillion dollars of economic value on an open source software protocol. Um, so you're, you know, you're, you're not really going to move fast and break shit when there's a trillion dollars of economic value. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there who are not necessarily, you know, like keeping track of, of certain upgrades and you have to make sure everything's forward and backward compatible. So, so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, the way Eric Lombroso, who's, who's an amazing Bitcoin developer, um, the way he described it to me, right, it's like flying a 747 um, and then changing every part of the 747 while it's midair without it crashing and killing everyone. I was like, <laughs> okay, fair, fair point. Like, let's yeah. do that real slow. <laughs> fair point. <laughs> Good point, Eric. Um, but I think what was really fun when other protocols started to emerge is um, – 
having the flexibility to experiment with different parameters, right? And also the introduction of new methods of consensus has been really interesting. Obviously, proof of stake, everyone's talking about, like, I have some fundamental issues with proof of stake, which I've written about in a lengthy blog post called Politics, Power, and Protocols. Um, And I think we can learn a lot from the history of politics (laughs) to help us understand the direction staking might be headed. And vote buying is cool. I'll happily do that all day, but like that, that's not the end all be all. Now we have, you know, proof of space and time, which I think is pretty interesting. So like Chia is implementing that. Um, Space Mesh is hypothetically implementing that um, in a manner of speaking. Filecoin's implementing that. Um, so, so I think there's been a lot of interest. There's proof of authority now um, as well. There's there's like all these really interesting things that people are experimenting with on uh, means of establishing consensus, which I think is is really interesting. But at the end of the day, right, what the market needs is it needs liquidity. And where the wealth in the crypto space comes from, where the liquidity in the crypto space comes from, is really from from Bitcoin. Right. And the question is, over time, the metric I look at is Bitcoin dominance, right? And through the last two sort of altcoin, quote unquote, cycles, if you will, or I'll just call them like expansion cycles, right? Because there's cyclical Mm -hmm. trends within the crypto landscape. And then there's the secular trend within these cyclical trends, right? We see every cycle is Bitcoin dominance falls typically below 50%, but it hovers around 50 from typically like 75, 80%. It'll fall to around 50%. And then we see the proliferation of all of these alternate quote unquote blockchains and protocols. And some of them are really interesting. And I think some of them are like less interesting. Like Shiba, is is that a technological innovation? Yeah. Pro- probably not. Is it cool? Like, yeah, someone made a meme yeah. and it's worth $5 billion. Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, is it useful? You know, I'm not going to judge the merits of Shiv, but I would wager to say outside of like pure speculation and a zero sum like game of race to the bottom, like don't be the last to hold the bag. I don't think it's that useful. But um, anyways, I think what's been interesting to observe is like, after every cycle, expansion cycle, there will be a contraction and typically Bitcoin returns to like its 70 to 80 percent dominance. And I think what's interesting there is psychologically, um, even for people who are really into assets that are not Bitcoin and Bitcoin is sort of the gold standard, right? It's the asset people really want to hold in their portfolio long term. And so that's been really interesting to observe. Um, And what's really cool, right, is as the crypto market expands, even though Bitcoin may be anywhere from 50 to 80% of that market, if we're talking about a $2.6 trillion market cap, like we saw in, you know, late April, early May, that still leaves a ton of room for a lot of value to be created in other parts of the space. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. But I just think the economic weight of Bitcoin and um, the security of the Bitcoin network and the the provable security of, of the proof of work consensus that Bitcoin utilizes just provides a really valuable function in the crypto ecosystem where there's a lot of volatility, there's a lot of uncertainty, um, there's a lot of instability, um, tech technical instability, management instability, like community instability. Bitcoin has sort of always been this, this like uh, bastion of stability, (laughs) if you will. And so um, that's just been interesting to observe. And so just seeing the proliferation of Bitcoin on Ethereum in the form of WBTC or or other sort of um, collateralized Bitcoin assets has been really interesting. Um, But I think this continued return back to Bitcoin just says something really interesting psychologically about how people view opportunity in the space. Yeah, awesome. Um, And, you know, of course, 
this is a Saffron Academy podcast, so I would be remiss if I if I didn't steer you in that direction. Um, yeah, but so. but Zach, it all fits together, right? Yes, ab- I mean, yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah, it I all just fits know. Together. Uh, our our listeners certainly, you know, have let us know. They're like, hey, can can you get people to talk about saffron more? Um, so I just want to make sure we don't delay that too much because there's so much to talk about, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering, you know, what was it like? The you know, how did you first hear about saffron? Uh, and also, what was kind of? Can you walk me? through how that relationship started and what your first impressions were of the project? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, like all good stories, you know, um, my relationship with Staffron started with an unusual conversation with an unusual person. Yeah. I just talked to r- strangers on the internet <laughs> in real life. I just talked to people. <laughs> um, so I met a Psy guy um, through a mutual friend and Psy guy started telling me about what they were doing with Saffron. When I met them, you know, they had gone through sort of um, Epic 1 and Epic 2, I believe, at that time. And so, um, you know, had built a really robust active community. Like SFI as an asset had been through like an interesting trajectory, is already circulating market. Um, and as they started explaining to me, and then like SciGuy and SciKeeper and I got on a call, we had a long conversation about what they were envisioning and um, what they were trying to build. And I was like, wait a minute, this makes total sense. This is exactly what we need in the DeFi space. Like not everyone wants to take the same level of risk. So this idea of being able to tranche risk and enable people who are net long different assets um, to earn yield while taking different levels of risk based on on their risk profile, like this is genius and very much needs to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ended up happening was, you know, when I met them, they really hadn't um, spent a lot of time in kind of the the crypto venture world. And so um, a lot of what I worked on with them early on was like, hey, like, let's really clean up the narrative. Let's really figure out how to build um, the right operational and strategic infrastructure around the project. Let's start talking to some funds and some strategic partners who could really help us accelerate and grow the, the project, especially engage with communities in different parts of the world. And like, let's really take this thing and, and supercharge it. And so we spent um, two months sort of working together on that um, and pulled together a great group of individuals and, and, and firms, including like Dragonfly and Coinbase and a bunch of others. Um, and so that's really how that relationship evolved. But it was really fun. Like in the early days of, of Saffron, um, spent a lot of time with, with the team. You know, we would do these like late night calls at 11 in the evening after I was done with like everything else going on. We like get together on the phone. Um, I connected them with, with their legal counsel, um, who has just been such a great resource. So we'd have these like long strategy calls. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a really fun experience to go through that and to work with the team. And um, it just strengthened my conviction, you know, in, in what they were building, but also in the opportunity ahead for Saffron. So that's, that's how it sort of developed. It started with a chance coincidence meeting, um, and then a random conversation, which then led to many other conversations, which then led basically to everything kind of getting rethought and kind of built out in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, 
yeah, it's funny you you mentioned Dragonfly. You know, we had uh, Hasib Qureshi on uh, on a previous episode, and he was talking a lot about how there's different things that go into making an investment, whether that's the team or the product or or the market, all three, a combination of of several of those. And I was just wondering, was there anything specific you saw? I mean, I know you mentioned kind of the potential of the product and how how you thought it was kind of genius. Uh, but anything else that kind of made this stick out to you as, hey, this is a this is a good investment, and I think I'm going to take the dive in. Yeah, l- look, I think there's really um, only one thing that that matters. <laughs> um, again, these are like all investments are speculative to some degree, and really, what you're betting on is people, right? Mm. And so, to me, what I saw with um, PsyKeeper and PsyGuys, like PsyKeeper is just absolutely brilliant, I think, is so phenomenally, not just intelligent and prescient, but so capable at execution. Like, I've never seen someone ship code like Liz. Like, the man just slings yeah. code. It's, it's outrageous. It's it really it's like inappropriate. I'm, yeah. like, you, I'm like, you, babe, you need to stop. Like, you're making other yeah. people look really bad. <laughs> They just sh- they were shipping just non nonstop. It was it was actually frightening to me. I I had interventions. I was like, "Do you sleep?" And he was like, "No." I was like, "Babe, yeah. you need to sleep. You can't die." You know, it's um, funny because I think pretty much every episode that we're going to do of this, there's going to be a moment where we wax poetic about Psykeeper, and yeah, there's great wild. reason for it. Yeah, there's great he's- reason for it. I mean, the man's absolutely wild. Like he's yeah. just, a, and he's so. Hot. And I'm like, you are just a legend. I love yeah. him. Um, yeah, he's great. And then uh, I think the, so. Really, right? It's about on on people. So Psykeeper, and then the p- people that Psykeeper was able to attract and and build, put around him, right? So Psyguy, um, and then Dingo obviously has been like a great asset to the community and has done such an amazing job. And then the the Saffron community itself, right? Like being on the Discord server and watching people talking about the project. Um, following the project on Twitter, looking at engagement on like the Saffron Weekly updates. I was like, wow, this community is like really engaged. They're really involved in the project. There's a lot of great interaction happening. And it all kind of started with SciKeeper. And I do think that um, founders of projects and their personal values and their personal style really has a big influence on the way the community develops. And um, I just think SciKeeper has been like a fantastic sort of individual to spark that flame. And then all of these amazing community members have just sort of rallied around the the project. And I was like, this is a bet I would make all day long because it doesn't matter what happens here. Like there's going to be something incredible that, that happens when you have this amount of energy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I obviously feel similarly, uh, which is why I'm here. So um, uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, a lot of people see the potential in Saffron, but I think that that realized potential looks differently to, to, uh, depending on, you know, who you're asking and what their Mm -hmm. perspective is. And I was just wondering, you know, where do you see Saffron three years down the line or five years down the line? What does that realized potential look like to you? Yeah. So, so I think in order to talk about this, we sort of have to go back to where we left off on the discussion of what's happening in crypto more broadly today and how it's so different from where we started. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what I think is really interesting, and again, this is where um, I'm going to nerd out a little bit. 
But what I've always been fascinated by is market microstructure, right? And what I mean by that is um, in, in a market, right, you'll have assets and financial products and, and that's great and well and fine. But what makes those assets and products pops possible to, to build and to trade and to interact with is underlying market structure. And market microstructure really dictates how markets flow and function, right? Like a market is a dynamic, ever-changing network. Um, and and most markets are actually quite quite small, right? Even if you're if you have a lot of retail traders on your platform, like really most large exchanges only have like 2000 to 3000 counterparties who actively trade on them. Um, and so market microstructure is this really interesting thing. And for decades and decades, market microstructure has been constructed in a very specific way where you have a vertically integrated stack, where you have price discovery and execution in the middle, you'll have um, margining, which is sort of like borrowing against securities and clearing, right. And you'll have PV in there, which cash borrow. And then um, you'll have settlement and reconciliation on the very back end, which is where everything's ticked and tied. And all of that flow happens within one institution, right? And it's sort of centralized and aggregated. Um, and what makes that flow possible is the fact that these institutions or, the, or these intermediaries um, are integrating all of that into, into one simple flow. Now, what was really cool to me when I really started understanding and delving into um, how protocols would fundamentally shift the structure, the microstructure of markets, is this idea that you could have one um, open source software layer, right, a, a protocol, and all of the assets on that protocol are now um, have price discovery, uh, trade execution, uh, clearing, and also margining, as well as settlement and trade reconciliation directly to that ledger. And what that effectively did is it takes that flow I described um, and it obviates the need to integrate that flow all within the walls of one institution. What it allows you to do is conduct every single one of the steps in that flow directly on the network. And what that means is all of a sudden, um, financial products and financial services go from being uh, created and distributed by these centralized entities that manage risk in a very opaque way to being uh, created and distributed by protocols and um, projects that can distribute them directly to the end consumer, but are doing it in an extremely transparent way, right? Because all of the code is viewable, open source, auditable. Um, and in addition, like there's a lot of transparency in the strategy. You know exactly what's happening to the assets to generate the yield. So to me, what was so interesting about Saffron is like, okay, all of a sudden you have fundamental innovation market microstructure that allows you to create products in new ways, but more importantly, allows you to distribute and package products in new ways and deliver them directly right to the end user of the product. And so that to me was like, okay, wait a minute. That's where DeFi really started, right? And the initial implementations of, of DeFi building blocks really focused on like the ba basic building blocks of, of capital markets and facilitating liquidity in markets, which is lending and borrowing, right? So you have people who are net long assets, but need cash. If people have cash, <laughs> but maybe, you know, want to earn some yield on it. And so you start to create this, this marketplace for lending and borrowing. Then as that marketplace around lending and borrowing develops, then you start to develop more sophisticated models for it. This is where like AMMs, DEXs come in. Then you start to see new models for trade execution, right? And even how trade pairs in a market get constructed, right? So 38,000 trade pairs on Uniswap, most of those were listed by users themselves. Like that's pretty wild. 38,000 trade pairs generating like one to $2 billion of daily trading activity, generating three to $4 million of fees for the exchange. I think, and it's all going back to the protocol, right? Because the exchange is owned by Uniswap token holders, like uni token holders. 
So it, I think, again, as you start to see the evolution of the DeFi space, one thing that becomes immediately clear is um, there really isn't a good way to mitigate and manage risk in the DeFi space. And impermanent loss was a lesson I learned the hard way. I was like, oh, I uh, cool. Yeah. But I like when it bites, it really bites hard and it yeah. hurts. Yeah. We've all had our painful lessons with it. Um, and for those who don't know what IL is, uh, sorry, it's impermanent loss, which is a phenomenon that happens in liquidity pools where you're putting in proportional shares of assets. Um, in those pools, the assets stay in equal proportions, whatever you put them in at. But if the price of one asset falls dramatically, it means that the value of your overall um, pool share also falls dramatically because the assets stay in proportion. So it's actually really messed up on the downside. It's really great on the upside. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so so to me, it was really interesting is there was like this completely blank space when it came to building new um, risk managed, risk mitigated products. And that's really where Saffron stepped in. And Saffron made it really easy for people who are net long a bunch of different assets to um, earn yield on those assets without having the risk of impermanent loss. And so that to me, like risk products and, and risk managed products are one of the core sort of um, asset management sort of building blocks in the traditional finance world. And the fact that they didn't exist in the DeFi world to me was, you know, very apparent. There are several protocols, if you recall, towards the end of last year who were attempting to go after this space, but Saffron was the only one shipping product. And I was like, this is just an absolute no-brainer, the place this market's going to go and just how big the market's going to be. Um, there's just a very clear opportunity here for Saffron to take the lead and just own this market in this narrative. Awesome. Yeah, very, very cool. And I, I totally agree. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on with you is just, you know, obviously we've gone through a little bit of an adoption curve and seen a lot of mainstream adoption of, of uh, blockchain technology and Bitcoin specifically. Um, but I think that one of the unique obstacles that we face with mainstream adoption of DeFi is kind of, at least through the retail investor standpoint, is, you know, let's face it, a lot of what we've been talking about here today is probably gibberish to, a, you know, a huge segment of people. And, you know, part of even my job and certainly a lot of other people is to make it easier for people to understand. And I was just wondering if, you know, what is your take on what mainstream adoption of DeFi is going to look like and rather how can we facilitate that going forward? Yeah. So, so that's a great question. Um, and I think if I may, I just want to introduce a quick framework. Um, I'm like a framework thinker. My brain like thinks in little boxes. So, so when I think about what's happening in the finance space more broadly, and let's let's leave like crypto as aside. Let's just think about the broader shifts taking place in financial markets. Um, financial markets are going through a, a fundamental shift, um, and it's part of its crypto, but part of it's also just that financial markets have historically been. Um, very inefficient and mired in archaic technology. Like most of the world's banks run on COBOL and COBOL's like what a 50 year old six, actually maybe it's seven years old at this point. Cause I think it was created in the late fifties, early sixties. COBOL mm -hmm. is a 70 year old programming language. And like most banks run on COBOL, um, 
so yeah, that's, you know, that's, we're just not going to make it. Yeah. Um, and so there's just been a broader shift that's happening and there's, there's a model that we use at CoinShares. Um, we call it the three D's and the three D's are digitization, driverless banks and, um, distribution. And if we look at the three D's, right. Digitization started way before crypto, right. It started really like when, um, electronic markets first emerged and we saw dematerialization or the elimination of paper stock certificates, which like if you've ever seen a paper stock certificate or a paper bond is pretty funny. Like there's actually these little tickets you tear off the bond and you would take them to redeem your annual coupon, which is pretty wild. It's really yeah. fun. If you ever, ever get your hands on one, like old timey bonds are, are great. Um, I have a framed one and I'm obsessed with it. Again, I'm a loser. So smelt <laughs> them things here. Um, but, but the digitization trend, right, started a long time ago. But what's really interesting about the digitization trend is um, the digitization trend when it comes to crypto and what we've been able to do with blockchain protocols, like we're digitizing cash. We're creating synthetic representations of uh, securities and assets that exist in the real world. And for people who are into quantitative finance, um, right, the idea of replicating portfolios or error diverse securities, we can now create replicating portfolios that have the risk return profile of traditional assets, but create them synthetically without needing to hold the underlying and create them natively on chain. So the digitization element has really just been accelerated by the introduction of this new technological medium, the blockchain, but also this new substrate and this like crazy community of people who are trying to build things in really novel and new ways. So that's digitization. Then we think about the driverless bank component. And this is really about programmatic execution. Um, so people will say like, oh, we had driverless banks before and we have them in the fintech space and maybe robo-advisors are a, like a TradFi version of that. But really what I think is so interesting about the crypto space is um, we can truly have programmatic execution that does not require a single person anywhere doing anything to execute or affect a trade, right? So the fact that we can write these things called smart contracts and have more sophisticated like um, uh, programmatic execution on top of these financial assets that have been digitized on a blockchain makes it really, really interesting, but also makes it really, really easy to create the types of products and services that people want without requiring high touch um, service around it. And that generally, like if you know how a bank functions, 30 to 40% of the overhead or cost in a bank is compliance. And then another 20 to 30% is typically customer service, right? So you spend a lot of time, you waste a lot of money. The reason banking services are so expensive is you're not just paying for the service you're getting, but you're paying for like the 30,000 bank branches around the world that need to exist because you cannot have programmatic execution in a banking environment. So I think the driverless component is really important and is such a key advantage of what protocols like Saffron are, are doing. And then the last component is, is the one I'm the most excited about. And I think it's the one that's easiest for people to grasp is distribution. Historically, when you distributed financial product, right, it'd be distributed through, fin uh, if you distribute financial product, it would be distributed through financial institution, right? So bank, broker, et cetera. And the way the distribution pipeline has historically worked, right, money starts at the central bank, it then goes to tier one, like really big commercial bank, who then distributes it to a smaller commercial bank who then distributes it to a local bank branch. And then um, in between there now, you'll have like fintech and various other endpoints. Walmart now has bank branches um, that they're building in collaboration with Ribbit. Like Amazon is going to become a bank. Um, Goldman's trying to do 
consumer banking as well. <laughs> There's all of these different touch points, right, that are sitting between you and the, the source of the asset. And so in that distribution chain, there's a lot of value that's sort of extracted. Um, but there's also um, a fundamental challenge in that if you're creating a financial product, your ability to distribute that product is predicated on the distribution relationships you have, right? And that means relationships with um, RIAs, registered investment advisors, wealth managers, um, and platforms like brokers where, where people can buy your product. And so that's always been a big limiting factor in how many products can get added to a market, right? Because you you just have limited capacity in terms of how much you can shove into the distribution pipeline. And those relationships, by the way, are really proprietary. They're really territorial. Like they require all sorts of crazy commissions and fees and, and all of that. And if you've taken a Series 7 exam or like you've worked in that industry, you know how the traditional distribution model works. What's so fucking cool to me about what we're doing in the DeFi space is you basically take out all of that shit. <laughs> yeah. all of it. And the product can go directly from the protocol to the end user. And that um, opens up a number of different things. Number one, it really dramatically lowers the cost of product distribution because effectively your only cost to distribute the product is the cost to deploy the smart contract. Mm -hmm. Second, it dramatically accelerates the rate at which new financial products can be created and brought to market, and it dramatically increases the ability for product to, to be distributed very widely. And so um, what I think becomes really interesting is like you have now, and it whereas with a traditional financial product, it would take you, you know, maybe two to three years and 10 to $20 million to launch it and to figure out whether or not the product's successful and there's demand for it. Now, all of a sudden, like within a day or a week, you will pretty quickly know whether or not your product has traction because your product's fully digital. It's programmatically executed. So once you code up the smart contract and deploy it, right, aside from maintaining the security of the smart contract and like the integrity of, of the smart contract, there's very little you have to do. And then um, what's really fucking cool about it is you can distribute directly to an audience of, you know, probably a million to two million users who are very willing to go through a lot of hurdles like UX hurdles. Um, like just the sheer hurdle of trying to use a DeFi project even like six months ago, um, they're willing to go through all of those hurdles and they're like salivating, they're like frothing at the mouth to get their yeah. hands on these yeah. things. So yeah, I just talked a lot. But again, 3Ds, um, digitization, driverless banks, distribution, taken all together, like what we're doing here is so profoundly transformative. And if you think on the impact it has on traditional models for how financial services firms function, um, it's so it's so cool. And honestly, through the process of engaging with DeFi, I think we've all learned like just how inefficient so many parts of the experience we have with both commercial and institutional banking are. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I know, uh, particularly internationally, it's just, you know, I think it's, it's, it's her. It's like actually shameful. Yeah. 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 Well, the thing is, you know, because they kind of put a veil over your eyes, like everything's okay. But if you actually look at the back end, I mean, it's, uh, it's the how dated it is and how broken it is is really uh, truly remarkable. But but again, right? I think the issue here is not just that it's dated or it's broken. The issue is is um, money, right? Money is the right of states. Banking is the right of states, and it's governed based on physical borders, right? Your physical borders in which you operate or where your business sits dictates like what rules and regulations you're subject to. That doesn't fucking work in a world where where we live and where ISP happens to be plugged in. Like 
that's no longer relevant. The fact that I'm sitting in the United States and I'm interacting with someone in Ghana, right? The blockchain doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this idea, right, that we have this patchwork where every single country in the world, like every single region in the world, in the US, by the way, banking is a state's rights issue. So not only hmm. do you have different rules country by country in the United States, you have 50 different fucking states that you have to deal with. It's whack and it doesn't work, right? Just like um, protocols made the internet um, like a, a massive marketplace for information data um, and all sorts of interesting new interactions through like common file standards for emails and uh, data files and for videos. The similar thing is happening for money. There's no reason that we shouldn't have a global market for money. There's just structurally no reason for it other than the fact that money has historically been over the right of nation states. But really what we're doing here is we're separating money and state and we're attempting to build something different altogether. And it's so fire. Yeah, it's it's very cool. And uh, that actually brings me to the next thing I, I wanted to talk about with you is just you know, I think everyone knows that El Salvador has started to uh, accept Bitcoin as legal tender. And mm. uh, I think there's other countries looking to do the same, actually. And I just wondered what your perspective was on what do you think the repercussions for that sort of movement are? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, look, it's such an interesting moment in time, right? Because we've always talked about it. <laughs> It's never happened. So I think, um, you know, it's a little bit of a surreal moment. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's exciting, but it's also kind of scary. Um, look, I what I think is so cool about what's happening in El Salvador, first of all, is that it started in like a very small local community. It started in El Zante, and it started with local residents of El Zante, like way before, you know, the Americans showed up. There are a bunch of local people in El Zante who were like, interacting with Bitcoin and doing a lot of education and evangelism. Um, and they created Bitcoin Beach and there are now like tons of shops on the beach that all take Bitcoin via lightning. But, like it really always starts with a passionate group of people on the ground who work together and, and bring something into existence. And then obviously more people come in, they help and they elevate and they accelerate and all of those great things. Um, what's been really interesting to observe, right? As soon as El Salvador made that announcement, the first entity react to react was the IMF. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, the IMF was like, hey, there's like significant risk here. You can't de dollarize, and we need to reconsider this billion dollar loan that, that we're extending you. Um, okay. And this is where Saffron actually becomes really interesting. So, one idea that I've been exploring, not with sovereigns yet, <laughs> but with um, charities and, and other entities that take in capital and have to be long term stewards of capital. Mm -hmm. So, I'm like, wait a minute. So, instead of taking in crypto and then selling it and turning it into dollars, right, into petrodollars, why don't you take the crypto that you're net long and why don't you put it to work on Saffron and yeah. generate yield? It's a no-brainer. Like it's yeah. a no-brainer in my view, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think there's this really interesting, again, like this really interesting paradigm that starts to exist. One thing that we don't appreciate, um, I think, because uh, I'm speaking in English and I presume most people who listen to this are listening in English, so they probably live in like, you know, the Western world. Um, one of the things we don't think about is fully 70% of the world's population today lives under what would be considered an authoritarian government, right? And in an authoritarian regime, uh, the one thing that you don't have is, is, is choice. And what Bitcoin gives you and what cryptocurrencies give you for the first time is choice when it comes to how you hold your wealth and where you invest your capital. 
And for the first time, um, no matter where I'm in the world, if I have an internet connection and I have the ability to get some crypto onto a DeFi compatible wallet, I can now trade with who I want, clear how I want, settle how I want. I can borrow money. I can lend money. And I can invest in a wide range of assets that I've never had access to before. And I think that's fundamentally, that's like really what's profound here is instead of having these localized markets where only Americans can participate in the U.S. stock market, all of a sudden what you start to create is a global market for everything. And that's really where the magic starts to happen, where it starts to get really wild. And I think that's going to happen very quickly. And you're going to see it in places like El Salvador to start, and it's going to be driven by ideologically motivated politicians. But I do think you're going to see a number of jurisdictions in the coming months and years who recognize that embracing cryptocurrencies is a superpower. It's it's a way to supercharge their economic growth. It's a way to supercharge the growth and development of their energy infrastructure and their compute and connectivity infrastructure, which will be the lifeblood of economies going forward. It's not just about the energy complex. It's about your ability to support large-scale compute and connectivity. Um, And it will dramatically alter the political landscape. Um, And so I'm very excited to see how this develops already. Like today, the Bank of England put out this crazy speech. I have to pull this quote. This guy's so fucking crazy. Sorry. No, please. the, The head of fintech or the head of, yeah, Block Bank of England's fintech lead um, urged eco-conscious British citizens not to throw the blockchain baby out with the Bitcoin bathwater. Like what in like that <laughs> sentence is cursed. It's yeah. cursed. <laughs> it's it's just, it's yeah. not. Yeah, it's whack. Um, like what the fuck does that mean? Throw don't throw the blockchain baby out with the Bitcoin bathwater. Like, here's what people don't understand. You don't need a fucking blockchain if there's nothing of value to secure. And guess what? Putting the British pound on a blockchain literally accomplishes nothing. Just use a goddamn database. Yeah. Why are we spending any energy on computation or establishing consensus when there's only one entity who makes rules called the freaking Bank of England? I get so aggrieved by like the shit people say. It's preposterous and wild. Um, so that's what we're dealing with, right? In the US, we see the attack on Bitcoin also ratcheting up. Um, the attack on, on DeFi is now the assault on DeFi, I should say, is starting. And it's so funny because when I talk to people who work at banks, first of all, I'm like, why are you Why are you here? Why are we still doing this? This is yeah. not a viable career path. It's like, get out. Yeah. Like When I see people in their 30s or my age working at a bank, I'm like, look, let me just lay it out. You could stay here for the next 20 years and maybe you'll have a shot at like being a top dog and like getting the corner office and eating with the big dogs. But more likely than not, you're going to spend the next 20 years grinding your life away for a group of people who could not care less about you. You're not going to make it to Valhalla. And at the end of your career, you will look back and you will realize that all you've done for the last 40 years of your career is push a bunch of paper around and made other people money. Like, yeah. why? 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 Yeah, why? It really is remarkable. And I have a lot of friends in that space. And I mean, I just hear stories from them. And it almost it perfectly matches up. Uh, with what it's you're social saying. Condition. It's the social condition. I mean, I was on that I was on that path, right? I was like, I have to work for a corporation. That's how I measure my self-worth as, a, as an immigrant. I'm like, I need to work hard and have a nice job and go to a skyscraper and wear my suit. <laughs> no, I mean, there really is. I mean, a lot of it is kind of that indoctrination, at least where, where I'm from, you know, uh, from a town in upstate New York, where what you did was you 
graduated high school, you went to a four-year school. And then, you know, at least where I was from, it's like you go into finance or you go into banking, you go into, uh, or, or you be a doctor. And that was basically it. But there was not a ton of critical thinking in those decisions. And I see a lot of these people, you know, as we're getting older, kind of parroting what you're saying and realizing, you know, maybe I should have taken a step back and, and taken a look at things here. But you know what? Like open arms, all are welcome. Plenty to do in, in the crypto space. Um, I forgot what we were talking about. I was rambling, man. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all like right. It's like later Actually, in the evening and I just yeah. start like, I just start talking. And then at some point my brain is like, you, you need to stop talking. And then I'm like, cool, I'm going <laughs> to no, stop. It's now. great. No, seriously, you've given stop. so many, so many nuggets of gold. And, um, I mean, I think we're actually just going to wrap it up. I had one last question I wanted to ask you, um, because I think it's something that we've seen, uh, pretty recently with the, the downturn or rather the pullback of some of the, uh, the prices of, uh, assets and crypto, but, you know, I think we see a lot of the price movement being tied to people who have a large social media following or large just influence in general. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we cult, can just culture. say, we can just say Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, Elon can, Musk. We, can, <laughs> we can, you can just say it. It's fine. We all know who you're talking about. You're like trying to be real. <laughs> the only other guy I was going to throw in there. Cause I think it was literally today. Um, Mark Cuban, you know, he got burned oh. with that Titan thing. And yeah, he was like, okay. and then just came out and was like, we need more regulation. And then so people were like, oh, man, they like panic because he asked for more regulation. But, you know, I was just wondering, you know, do you think that that's something that this market can kind of outgrow and kind of become immune to or at least kind of dampen a little bit? Or do you think that that's just kind of the nature of, you know, people who are incredibly influential and when they say things, people are going to, whether they it's like reactionary because I think what, what is the statistic of uh, how many actual Teslas was bought with Bitcoin? It was, yeah, it was one. Um, it was, it was one, right? Yeah. But people panicked anyway when he, when he okay, said but, that. But, like, but, but, but hold on. Okay. 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 But we're ignoring like two very important things here. Number one, like Elon tweeting is not the cause, it's the effect, right? So mm-hmm. Elon is just a giant megaphone through which things that have already happened are broadcast, right? Mm-hmm. He, what I always say about Elon's like, he's the Kim Kardashian of Twitter. Kim Kardashian rules Instagram. Elon Musk is the Kim Kardashian of, of Twitter. He's the most yeah. widely followed person on that medium. So mm-hmm. obviously anything the man says is going to get magnified and like taken out of proportion. Um, so, so I think it's important to not confuse cause and effect. I don't think mm-hmm. Elon Musk is the, the cause. I think Elon Musk is the effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the cause really is things that are happening in, in the market. People are not selling Bitcoin because Elon said X. People are selling Bitcoin because they fucking got liquidated. <laughs> yeah. Like let's so so I think the media has done a really good job in trying to position Elon in a certain way. He himself has has tried to do that as well. I think people prescribe way too much power to to people tweeting on the internet. Um but again, I think the other fact that we forget is we live in like a world where facts don't matter anymore. And I think yeah. one of the biggest issues with the crypto communities, we're trying to win like a high school debate. And I was a high school debater. So you know how it goes. You like bring your boxes filled with cards and you have all your data and your facts and you have a fact-based debate with the like other high school you're debating against. 
That's not how the world we live in works anymore. Facts no longer matter as we Mm -hmm. see. Like we were all just locked inside our houses for 18 months for no fucking reason. Mm -hmm. Literally no reason at all. There was zero reason to do any of this, right? So again, facts don't matter. We live in a world where where feelings and narratives matter more than facts. And I actually think as our world continues to become less stable, people are going to gravitate more towards storytelling and myths and like things that are convenient or feel good. Um, And so again, I think it's one thing we just really need to be cognizant of is like one of our most important functions. And this is why I spend so much time on the internet and talking and trying to (laughs) talk to people. Um, One of the most important things we need to do is become really good storytellers because what people gravitate towards is storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. We all want to believe something that is so unreal, but makes us feel so special and like so magical and so enlightened in some way like mythos or the act of storytelling to explain phenomena in our world the the creation of mythology that's been how human society has operated since since the dawn of time right it's mm-hmm. it's just how we function as social animals so the ability um of certain people in the industry to create mythos or to tell really exceptional stories um or build personas and narratives around themselves is something important to be aware of and i think it's an important thing for for projects and for people who are trying to, to accomplish things um to be able to replicate because again that mythology right the storytelling um the way we present ourselves is so important and like all you need to do is take a look around the crypto space there are plenty of people who have rewritten their own mythology and you know gone from zero to hero or from hero to <laughs> zero yeah. you know can go the opposite way as well but really what that is often it's not fact-based um it's mythos and people being really effective storytellers and effectively crafting their own mythology and i think elon is absolutely the master of that if we look at the reality of what tesla is doing versus the way he speaks about what tesla is doing right they're two very different things um So I think, again, that's something just to be mindful of is we need to separate fact from fiction, but fiction or this mythos, this mythology we write is always going to be more appealing because it's more fun and it's more interesting than the facts. Of course. Awesome. Well, Meltem, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I hope our listeners will learn a ton from you. I know I definitely did. I'm going to go back. I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to take notes on your answers because seriously, you, you <laughs> please, really, please, no. uh, <laughs> no, just DM you, me. I'll be like, here, read these like 10,000 books. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. Uh, it was seriously a pleasure and, uh, hope to have you on maybe down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And, um, for everyone who's listening as part of the Saffron community or, is considering joining the Saffron community, um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, my DMs are open on Twitter. I'm at melt underscore Dem. Um, I do my best to answer. If I don't, please don't get mad at me. There's a lot a lot of really weird stuff, but also really cool <laughs> stuff that, that comes through. Um, so yeah, feel free to hit me up there or you can always um, at tag me as well. But yeah, thanks for having me. It has been really great to be part of the Saffron community. And I'm um, excited to to continue to, you know, hang out in the Discord. And I creep. I lurk. Like, I'm, I consume the content. I don't necessarily make the content. But, yeah, feel free to hit me up anytime, guys. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And, guys, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Saffron Academy podcast. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to go and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Saffron Finance underscore. We also have communities on Discord and Telegram, and you can find the links to those in the show notes. We'll see you guys next time.
Thank you.